we, uh, each Sunday, we walk through passages of the Bible. we've, We've gotten this pattern together. Uh, You could call this style of preaching expository preaching. You might even call it expositional preaching. But it's a style of preaching that goes back hundreds of years where you take passages of Scripture and you walk through them verse by verse. And why do we do that? Because we believe that the Bible is infallible and inerrant. And so every part of the biblical text is coming from God. And so what do we do? We exposit, we pull apart the text so that we see what God would have us to hear and what He would have us to do. Expositional or expository preaching. That's what we do here. And so we'll always do that as long as I'm here. And I have a feeling even if I get hit by a bus, the next person you bring in needs to be an expository preacher. As we walk through the Scriptures, and I stand in a long line, actually not a long line, I stand in a line of two people, really, uh, Clyde and then Dave, uh, and I know there were a few before um, them. Uh, But that's what we do here, and here's the benefit of doing that, is that as you walk slowly through passages of Scripture, and you walk through books of the Bible, you begin to see patterns, and you begin to see repetition, you begin to see links that you wouldn't see if you just bulldozed on through it like, like you were in a race. I mean, really, it's, it's like taking a slow walk through the woods or sprinting on the trail. You're just going to pick up things as you walk slowly through, uh, through those woods, or in our case, you walk slowly through the Bible. And I'm going to tell you, today is one of these moments where I'm so glad we're walking slowly through the Scriptures. In a million years, I would have never thought we would actually be doing this sermon. Now, I knew it was coming. I just assumed we'd bypass it, and I'd get on to the next passage right after this. But there is an insight in this passage we cannot let go of. And so we're going to do it today. It's a passage I imagine most of you have just walked right on past. Probably because you don't know how to, you don't even know how to read the passage. That's probably why you, buy, you go right over it. That's the case for me. I struggle with even reading the passage. Now, I've been reading English for a long time. But most of it is, is non-English to me. But man, there's an insight. There is a pattern that's just going to, just, we're just going to see how Luke just unpacks and, and again unveils a pattern that's been right there in front of us all along the way. It's it's going to be this moment where we see this doctrine that has been so important to Luke up to this point, something we've been talking about. We're going to see it now from another angle. It's the doctrine of the Incarnation. That doctrine we've been seeing over and over again. And today we're going to see it with fresh eyes from this this passage you had never expected it from. Actually, it has everything to do with this doctrine. Alright, so before we jump into the passage... What I want to do is I want to do a little review. I want you to remember how we got here. So we start the gospel this way, the gospel according to Luke. We remember studying these verses. We're just going to read in verse 3 and 4, Luke 1. I myself have investigated everything from the beginning. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Two things stand out in those two verses. Number one, he notes this is an orderly account. So the way he's put it together matters. He didn't just like 
write write things on sticky notes and throw them on the ground and just hope they landed the right way. This is an orderly account. So the way he's put it together, when this comes before this and this comes after this, all of that matters. He's telling us through something about the way he's put it together. So that's the first thing. Organization matters. The second thing there, uh, nope, nope, come back. The second thing is um, in this, this last underlying part, that what he wants to make sure that this Theophilus knows is that what he's been taught is true. And one of the key things Theophilus has been taught, as every Christian had been taught, as they heard the gospel proclaimed in those early years, and the same message that's been proclaimed in Orthodox Christianity up to this day, is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Fully God, fully man. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation, that two natures, two full natures in one person. He wasn't like half human and half God, fully human, fully God in one person. This is so key. And Luke's going to write the Gospel in such a way to make sure that that key piece of the Gospel is clear to Theophilus. He's going to organize it in a particular way, and he's going to make sure to draw out particular parts of the story so that we know this is this one person, this Jesus, the Anointed One, fully God, fully human. Just so you can, just just quick review, we've been seeing it already in the first two chapters we looked at. Take a look. If you remember when Gabriel came to Mary, he's going to say this to her. You will conceive and give birth to a son. Verse 31 through 35 here. That is a very clear statement of Jesus' humanity. He's going to come through a female womb. He will be human. This will be a baby boy. But right on the heels of that, as he presses on this one pedal, this one nature, you do see what comes next. Here's what the angel continues to say. And you will call him Jesus. He will be great, be called the Son of the Most High. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, to be born, will be called the Son of God. Okay, so you're going to have, there's this human that's going to be born. Born of a woman like every other human being. But he will be the Son of God. Fully human, fully God. This is so key for Luke. You don't get just fully God. You always, he's always linking Jesus to his humanity. And when he deals with his humanity, he's going to link him to his divinity. Fast forward to his childhood. You remember in chapter 2 where Jesus and his parents and a lot of other relative and fr- relatives and friends, they go into Jerusalem and then they leave. They, they go for the festival, they leave, and the problem is that Jesus isn't with the crowd. Jesus has stayed behind in Jerusalem. So they go back to Jerusalem. They're looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus? And you remember, they find him. Here's what happens. We'll take these two passages. Luke 2.49. Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house? And right there, remember, we noted Jesus is beginning to understand His divine relationship with His Father. God the Father and God the Son. God the Son is now beginning to realize the extent of this relationship with God the Father. The eternally begotten Son forever and ever The great I Am is realizing as a human this relationship between God the Father, God the Son. This is a clear declaration that this is the Son of God. Luke Luke could have put anything here, but he quotes Jesus on this point. I had to be 
and my Father's house. Now, just in case you think he's just fully God, and that's about it, and somehow he's not even really in a real human body, Luke makes sure, as he will, as the pattern follows, his pattern follows, the way he's organized this, he's going to make sure that you don't forget, even though he is in his Father's house, don't you forget he's also human. Luke 2.52, verse 52. And Jesus, what? Grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus had to grow in his intellect. Remember, we noted when we studied this passage, Jesus doesn't come into the world uh, knowing everything about the world. He is limited. And so he grows in his intellect just as he grows in his body like every other human being. That is part of what it means for him to suffer for us is even in those limitations. No less God, but in becoming human, he takes on the limitations. And one of those is even his intellect. And so sometimes when you see Jesus talking and knowing things no one else knows, it's because God the Father is revealing it to him. So here we have Jesus, I'm in my Father's house, fully God, and yet he's growing in wisdom, fully human. So in the first two chapters we've seen highlighted, this great doctrine of the Incarnation, fully God, fully human. And just before we get to this very, very difficult passage we're about to look at, do remember what comes right after, right before we step into what's about to happen. Here's what happened. If you remember, he's at his baptism, Jesus being baptized. Luke records it this way, Luke 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Do you see that? Right here, as Luke records it, again, he presses on the fully God pedal of the doctrine of the Incarnation. There is no question at this point, this is Jesus, Son of God, eternally begotten. God the Father declaring that this is His Son, eternally begotten forever and ever. And then the Holy Spirit confirming all of it by descending in bodily form like a dove. Fully God. Now here... You could finish, you could actually, you know where we're going now. Because at this point, hopefully, if I've done my job, you're seeing the pattern. When Luke describes one side of the doctrine of the Incarnation, he's always about to grab the other side as well. So right here, right before we get to the passage today... We've just had him again unveil and unpack a, this deeper reality of the doctrine of the Incarnation here at the baptism of Jesus. This has been a declaration he is fully God. So what do you expect to come next? We've got to have the other side. Fully human. Now at this point we've seen some of the ways Luke has made sure we understand he's fully human, right? Well, there is this... Probably, probably one of the best ways you can, you can describe someone as fully human is go ahead and run their family tree. Go run that family tree. And that's exactly what Luke's going to do. He's going to actually lay out Jesus' genealogy. There will be no question. This Jesus, eternally begotten Son of God who has come into this world, don't you dare wonder how human He is. Luke's going to track that family line. And it's a long family line with lots of names that I don't know how to pronounce. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to enlist a professional reader. That's right. 
who knows how to pronounce all those names and can do it with some music behind them and do it really well. I'm actually going to have pulled the audio from one of the audio Bibles. It's very popular. I'm actually, we're just going to, we're actually going to listen and read it off the screen. We'll do that together. So Carol, go ahead. Here's our passage, Luke 3, verse 23 through 38. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum. Oh, run it all the way. The son of yes. Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Ma'ah, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arthaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of of God. It's a long list. It's a long genealogy. But when you hear it, you feel the weight of how long that genealogy is. Now, you, if you remember, this is the, the second of two genealogies we have in the New Testament. If you remember, Matthew also, also has uh, uh, records a genealogy of Jesus, but one that is actually shorter. And a little bit different, because what, what Matthew does is he actually starts the gospel according to Matthew with the genealogy. And he will start with Abraham and track all the way to Jesus. Uh, what Luke will do is he will start with Joseph and track all the way to Adam. So Luke has this longer, uh, this longer genealogy, and it's got a bit of a different purpose. Now, there's this key difference between those two, and it actually will trip up a lot of people. So I want to acknowledge it. Let's note, you've got to ask, who is Joseph's dad? So here's Matthew 1, 5, uh, 15, the last part of verse 15. 16. So here comes out of his, uh, Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. And the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So who's the, so for Matthew's sake, Jacob is Joseph's dad. 
Well, interestingly, Luke 3.23, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. Did you see the, do you see the discrepancy like I see it? I mean, like, so who's Joseph's dad? Or is this like a Jerry Springer show? Like, we just don't know who, who his dad is. Like, what's going on here? So there's a couple things happening. There's a couple things happening in Luke 3. There's a couple things happening we're going to have to note. Number one, there's a parenthetical thought. There's this, there's this added, there's this added um, idea or comment, this added uh, comment that Luke throws in that actually tips us off to something Luke's trying to do. Do you note here, he says, Jesus the Son, and then what does he say? So it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. So many commentators here note that's very important that Luke adds that, because what he's doing is he's, he's wanting to hyperlink back to the story of the birth of Jesus. And you and I both know that who puts Jesus in the womb of Mary? The Holy Spirit, God. God the Spirit does. Although everyone else would have thought it was Joseph. And so Luke uh, here is hyperlinking back to the actual reality that this Jesus, this Jesus is the son, so it is thought, of Joseph. And then we're going to move on, son of Heli. So actually Joseph is actually part of the parenthetical comment, not actually part of, uh, not actually the son of Heli. Here's another thing that would tip us off to that reality. In every one of these, there is a definitive article, the. So in English, the is the definitive article. Every time it notes the son of, it, Luke will use a definitive article. So here's how it would sound in other places of the genealogy, just so you can take a look, okay? Let's go one forward. Of the Perez, of the Judah, of the Jacob, of the Isaac, of the Abraham. That's kind of the way that looks in the Greek. We don't carry that forward into English. There's no the Joseph. There's no the Joseph. So it's not Jesus, son of the Joseph. This would tell us then... That Luke here is not emphasizing who Joseph's father is, but something about Jesus' bloodline. Okay, here's the way one commentator summarizes it. Take a look at this. Jesus was supposed to be the son of Joseph, but was really the son of Heli. And then you just keep drawing out the genealogy. Heli would then be the father of Mary. And the word son, it's very important, the word son would be taken in the wider sense of descendant, the name of the mother, the name of the mother of Jesus being omitted, because it was not customary for women to be included in a genealogy. Typically, women were not included. Now Matthew includes some women in the genealogy, but there's a different reason for th putting the women into that genealogy. But here we're tracking a bloodline. And so then what we have is Luke tracks Jesus through the bloodline of Mary. Because literally, Jesus comes from Mary. I mean, literally, her body births Jesus. Joseph's important because, for Matthew in particular, because Matthew's interested in this. He wants to communicate who's the rightful heir to the throne of David. Who gets to rule on the throne of David? Who's the rightful king of Israel? Well, Matthew's going to be very clear. It's Jesus. And so what Matthew's going to do is he tracks the legal descendants to the throne of David. Luke is tracking the bloodline. He wants you to know that Jesus, 
who is the son of Mary, who is the son of Heli, and he immediately picks up the male descendants and gets all the way back to Adam. That's what he does. So Matthew and Luke have two different, they're doing two different things. And so Matthew will track the legal descendants of Joseph, which will track to the legal descendants of the throne of David. They're going to come all the way to Joseph because Joseph is a rightful heir to the throne of David. And Jesus would be the legal son of Joseph. And so Jesus literally holds uh, in his body the legal is the legal descendant of the throne of David. But he's also got the bloodline that goes all the way back to Adam that comes right through Abraham. He is a Jew. And he'll track it all the way back. So these two genealogies are trying to do two different things here. Now, this helps us understand one other discrepancy, which some have gotten real uh, upset about. Note this. Matthew 6 this last part and verse 7, David was the father of Solomon. You guys are tracking here. Luke's genealogy has this, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Well, that's, that's interesting. But when we understand what they're trying to do, David had many sons. I mean, David didn't just have one son. Why would Matthew pick Solomon? Because guess who came to the throne after David? Solomon. Matthew's tracking the legal descendants to the throne of David. So Solomon's the one he's going to put in the list. He's going to track it all the way to Joseph. And Joseph being the legal son, uh, Jesus being the legal son of Joseph, he's rightful heir to the throne. But if we're tracking the bloodline to Mary, it comes through one of his other sons, Nathan. So yes, there are discrepancies here on the genealogy, but they're serving two purposes. So let's summarize what we've said at this point, okay? Here's what one scholar says to bring us some summary. Matthew traces Jesus through Joseph, his legal father, to David's son Solomon the king, by whom Christ rightfully inherited the throne of David. Luke's purpose, on the other hand, is to show Christ as an actual human. So he traces Christ to David's son Nathan through his actual mother Mary, through whom he can rightfully claim to be, the full, to be fully human, the Redeemer of humanity. Luke's whole purpose is to communicate to us, Jesus is human. And don't you ever forget, he is fully human. Fully God, fully human. And we know that because he can track it all the way back to the first Adam. And that Adam becomes real important. Because you know what happened with that Adam. Well, that Adam disobeyed God. That Adam ruined it for the rest of us. With that sin, sin entered the world. And through sin came death. And death has reigned. And every human being gets caught up in that curse. That's just your reality and mine. Now the Apostle Paul, that great theologian, he reflected on this long and hard as he, after he came to Christ. And he says it this way. So I'm going to do this backwards. Some of you, if you like linear, sorry, I'm, I'm going to switch the order. Check this out. As, as Paul, and this is part of a larger argument, note this. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Why is there death? Because there's sin. And where did sin enter the world? Adam. That first Adam that Jesus' bloodline tracks all the way back to, that Adam. That Adam, through him, sin came into the world. And the wages of that sin is death. Now the question is, how many of you get caught up in that curse? I mean, really. I mean, how many of you have to deal with, are going to have to deal with sin and death. Well, 
Romans 3.23, Paul already gave us the answer. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are caught up in that sin. And we are under that curse. But here's the cool thing. Remember, Jesus' bloodline tracks all the way back to that Adam. But right after that Adam messed it all up, God did not throw the whole thing out. God actually made a promise. You remember there was a serpent in the garden? Remember this? There was a serpent in the garden. The evil one was there. We don't know. all. A lot of questions about all that, I know. But God then gives a curse to each one, to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. And when he says, when he speaks to the serpent, remember the humans have just gone over to the serpent's side, right? Like the, the humans just said, we're on the enemy's side. You would think that when he speaks to the enemy, he's going to wipe the whole thing out. Like, I'll take you, serpent, and I'm taking everyone that's got linked up with, I'm taking them out. But God in his sovereignty and his grace He chooses, God chooses in His sovereignty to elect a new way. Check this out. You wouldn't, it's not the thing you would expect to come out of His mouth. Now, maybe at this point in our life, as we are Christians, maybe we would, but if you go back to the beginning and you don't know how it's going to play out, you wouldn't expect this. Check out the the promise God makes. I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation. God speaking to the serpent, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head, you will strike his heel. You can imagine, they're, they're just clumped together, right? They're clumped together. And the serpent and the, the woman, they're right there connected. They're, they, have, they are enemies of God. And yet he says, I'm going to pull these apart. Actually, I'm going to put hostility between you and you, O oh enemy. You old enemy, the serpent. And actually, I'm going to bring someone. There will be a descendant that comes from this woman. And he will be a new Adam. And he's going to strike your... uh, You will strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He will destroy you. There's a descendant coming through a woman. And he will be the new Adam. He will bring salvation. He's going to fix everything that the old Adam messed up. He's coming. You know who that Adam is. Jesus. Don't think Luke doesn't have all this in his mind. Luke knew there's a new Adam coming. And he's wanting to say, not only is he God, he's fully human. This is the new Adam. That genealogy is tying the promise to the reality that's right there. Jesus, son of God, fully human, fully man. Man. I got to show you this one thing, because it's not like I just stand up here and try to work all these things out on my own. Paul had already worked all this out. Romans 5, check this out. Romans 5, 18 through 19. Again, I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. You know the fundamental story uh, of the world, the most important thing in the world, is that. Those categories are the fundamental reality in the world. Either you're in the old Adam or you're in the new Adam. That's it. Jesus comes into the world not to solve all of our petty problems. He comes into the world to solve the fundamental problem in the world. That's your heart. That's your rebellion. That's my disobedience. 
sin's what he came into the world to solve. There are a lot of other things that get fixed when you fix when you fix sin. There will be no more cancer. No more. But he didn't come into the world to heal cancer. He came into the world to destroy death and sin. To strike the head of the old enemy, the serpent. And deal with your rebellion and mine. That's why he came into the world. And he could do it only because he was fully God and fully human. Because every part that he assumed, he saves. It's why not only is your spirit saved, but your body. You're going to have a new body because he had a new body. Oh, okay. Let me summarize it this way. With this genealogy, Luke is telling us, in addition to, be, in addition to being fully God, Jesus is also fully human. He is the new Adam that brings salvation to the world. Man, what a great story. I mean, this is like the gospel message. You and I, we, those cosmic rebels who have so desperately wished we could be God, we, under judgment, a new Adam came in to take that judgment for us. And then, not to just take judgment, but to give life. All right, let's make some application. Here we go. I only we got like one big application point in general, but it'll get us all the way to C.S. Lewis. So here we go. The fact that the Son of God became fully human to save us, uh, to save his people. Now I need you to just, I need to go right over that one more time. The fact that God the Son became fully human to save his people, the fact that that had to happen, tells us that the fundamental problem in the world is not global warming, threats to democracy, inflation, illegal immigrants, opioid addiction, pornography, corrupt leaders, etc. You can see, you just keep, I could just line up the list, right? The fundamental problem is that our rebellion against God, that is our broken relationship with the one who gives us life. That's the problem. You could have the best country in the world and go straight on to hell. Your sports team could win every day of the week and you'd still be going to hell if you don't get this fundamental issue dealt with. Now, I need you to know, I'm just going to take a side note, maybe some comic relief. I will never mention a sports team again. Because last week, the teams I mentioned went in the wrong direction. So I'm not doing it again. And it may be, if someone could tell me, I hope that what I'm hoping has happened has happened right now over in Munich. But we'll, we'll leave that for later. Let me say that big paragraph just another way. This. Oh, yep, yeah, one more. There it is. Getting right with God is the most important thing in your life. I mean, seriously, that's the most important thing in your life. Do you know the problem with that? Like, it's not a problem with the reality of that statement. The problem with that is me. Do you know how often I think about God? Maybe more than you because I'm a pastor. So I might, I might have you on, on frequency. Maybe. But in general, I struggle to keep God in front of my mind. I actually don't think in our world the greatest danger to our hearts and our rebellion towards God is open rebellion. I actually don't think that's, that's, I don't actually think that's the great threat. I think the great threat to us is distraction. I think we become just distracted with so many other things that God doesn't even become part of our consciousness. 
Like, I just go about my day not even thinking about God. And when I don't think about God, he's not in front of me. And I'm telling you, my heart's tendency is always to be God. So I'm just, I am happily sinning, always justifying my behavior because I'm always right. Because God's not being kept first and foremost right there in front of my mind. I'm not keeping the cross and Christ crucified in front of my mind. I'm just telling you, I think distraction's the great enemy to, uh, um, uh, for our hearts. I do. I don't think it's the big mass of sins. I think it's simply just not caring. C.S. Lewis talked about this. It's one of my favorite quotes out of the Screwtape Letters, the end of letter 12. You remember in the Screwtape Letters, Lewis writes as a senior demon. He's writing in, from the perspective of a senior demon, training a younger demon how to tempt a new convert to Christ. And so the enemy is actually God, because remember, we're writing from the perspective of a demon, so the enemy is God, okay? So get your head around that. Here's what Lewis writes from the perspective of the senior demon. Here's what he writes. Do, but do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you can separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are provided, that, they, uh, that their cumulative effects is to edge the man away from the light. And into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. We just slowly walk ourselves into darkness. And I think... It happens when we forget that the most important thing in your life is Christ, Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ ascended. When we forget that on a daily basis, we lose anchor. We become unmoored from reality. So, so the message out of the genealogy is the reason Jesus had to come and be fully human is because your fundamental problem is your sin. And the way to deal with it is He had to become fully human so that He could take on the full punishment and curse and wrath of God so that then He could hand over His record to you. He hands His righteousness to you. And when you die as a justified believer, you know what record you take with you? You take Christ's record. Listen. I love following different records. I like stats. I like following the storylines uh, from all the different leagues. But when I die, I'm not taking the Braves with me. And after this season, I don't want to take their record. I'm not that's not the record I take. I don't take a report card out. I take Christ's righteousness with me. That literally will be the most important thing in the world. And so if you're credulous, if you're doubtful for about anything I'm saying, when you die, you will find that what we have said here today, what we find in this genealogy, is as real as anything you ever knew. It will be the most important thing in the world, your relationship with Christ. And you get it by faith. Okay. So here we go. Next step. How in the world do you keep Christ in front of you throughout the day? Here it is. You've seen it before. We're doing it again, but with a twist. Use sticky notes to remind yourself of the gospel throughout the day, each day this week. I don't know how you want to do it with a sticky note. Put a cross, put a verse. 
Just put Jesus, put it on your car dashboard, put it on your mirror, put them in different places. Put them so you remember Christ as you're just going about ordinary life. Now, I've, I've used this one several times in our time together. But I've never thought about the fact that maybe you don't own sticky notes. Well, today, that excuse is gone. Because when you come forward in just a minute to take communion, there are sticky notes at both of the offering plates. Now, there are only 48 stacks, so I'm assuming that if you're in a family unit, you just need one stack. Okay? All right, not unless you're like trying to one-up your spouse or partner and go, I'm going to be a lot more holy than you. Like, you watch, and I, you take a whole stack, okay? Just take one, take one so we all have one, and then go have fun. Go have fun and keep Christ crucified, risen, and ascended in front of you. Keep His righteousness in front of you. And it might just be, as you're walking down the slippery slope into darkness, one of those sticky notes will catch you. And it'll be right there in front of you so you remember. Maybe you won't have the outburst of anger. Maybe you won't come up on the bumper of that car. I also am not going to mention that road again. Because this week, I was behind more slow people than I have been in a long time. It was God laughing at me. Keep Christ in front of you. Driving, working, and everything in between. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this genealogy. By inspiration, you gave Luke these words to map out the life of Christ all the way back to Adam. Thank you that he is the new Adam. Thank you that we take his record with us. Thank you for his righteousness. Convict us of our sin. Draw us to repentance. Give us faith. And help us as we do this together as a church family. And may these sticky notes just be one part of training towards righteousness towards sanctification, and towards holiness. We pray it all in the name of Him who is Lord and King Jesus.